HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is the eastern United States of America, plus a very special guest. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm executive director of HRN. We are joined today by my lovely co-hosts, Hannah Forden. Welcome, Hannah. Happy Thursday, Katie. Happy Thursday, indeed, and happy Thursday to our engineer, Matt Patterson. How's it going? Oh, it's so good. It's uh, It's hot. It's very toasty. hot. It's very hot everywhere. I've, I've been saving uh, up my can crack here. Here we go. Ah. I felt like I maybe was going to get blown up by a lightning bolt the other day. That was exciting. Uh, That's Capri quite maybe has some of that going on right now. Oh, wait. I, I, she hasn't even oh, been introduced spoiler yet. Alert. I okay. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Let me introduce our guest for this week. Welcome to Capri Cafaro. She is a former Ohio State Senator author of United We Eat, 50 Great American Dishes to Bring Us Together, and the host of HRN's newest series, Eat Your Heartland Out. Welcome, Capri. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Happy, happy hour to everybody. Happy, 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 happy hour. hour. And double <laughs> congratulations on your book coming out and launching the podcast all in the last few weeks. We are so excited to be working with you, and I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Well, I am. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be part of the uh, Heritage Radio Network family. It has been uh, an incredible experience. Everybody, and when I say everybody, I especially mean Matt, who's had to put up with me in quarantine, doing all of these episodes uh, over the last you know several weeks and months. Uh, it, everyone has just been an, a pleasure to work with, and it really has been a labor of love, and I mean that sincerely. And I can't believe that it's actually like real and here, and the show is actually out for people to listen to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and these lucky listeners right now are going to get to hear it in uh, 15 minutes something like that awesome something like that uh, capri this show was just coming into being um right before i went on maternity leave it was like the dead of winter mm-hmm. we had been introduced by dana cowan also an hrn host and we had a conversation while you had ducked out of your dinner in London in like a rainy night. Um, tell us about That's the commitments. genesis 
of the show. Yeah, I mean, I felt really bad that you were well, like in the uh, middle yeah, of dinner. In, in your intro, around. you mentioned the fact that I uh, was a state senator in Ohio for a decade. Um, and but you know, the, what the impetus really behind this was is that you know I'm from Ohio. I'm from the Midwest. And, uh, you know, I've always loved to cook and eat like many of us and certainly I think the HRN uh, audience as well. But, uh, you know, to me, I am, you know, both fascinated and a fan of the Midwest. I think that we are the underdog and we are, you know, very, very misunderstood, particularly our foodways. And, you know, as somebody who I'm from northeastern Ohio, and, and I think a lot of times when people think of the Midwest, they think that it's, you know, amber waves of grain. And, and to an extent, that's true. I come from the more industrial Midwest. But then when I was elected, I represented a much larger part of, of my surrounding area. And so I got very involved with the agriculture community um, and really saw, I think, the depth and breadth of uh, a lot more that we had here just in this little microcosm of the Midwest where we had Southern and Eastern Europeans next to, you know, the Amish community. And I thought to myself, this is a story that needs to be told. Hopefully other people want to hear this story. um, But I feel like because the Midwest gets no play. It gets no love in in the food scene at all that I, I wanted to shine some light and show that the Midwest is more than, you know, corn dogs on a stick. It's, it's more than, um, you know, um, fried butter, you know, or whatever <laughs> at, at a fair um, or meatloaf. Um, there is a lot of very, very interesting um, tales and flavors out of this community. And that's what Eat Your Heartland Out is all about. I love that. And I know that our listeners are going to be hearing um, the the first episode shortly, but um, I, I really enjoyed listening to the, the third episode, which is about yes. indigenous influences on Midwestern cuisine, because as, as much as like, y- you know, the corn dog uh, stereotype holds up, like the truth of it is, is that like, so much of the what makes the agriculture and the food culture special in the Midwest comes from that heritage. Um, can you give us a little sneak peek into that conversation? Sure, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought this up because this was really uh, an exciting episode for me to do and a very, very important one. And that's why it is, you know, one of the first. The first, you know, two episodes really kind of set the stage and provide the context. And then we get into kind of uh, delving deeper into the different uh, communities that shape the the foodways of the of the American Midwest. And you have to have the initial building block. And to me, obviously, that's the indigenous communities. And we spoke to um, some really great folks, including someone that your listeners may be familiar with, uh, Sean Sherman, who is otherwise known as the Sioux Chef. And he has been very committed to something called food sovereignty. And he is um, traced the seeds and the seed origins of of North America and why this is important. And you'll get to hear a lot more about this when you listen to episode three. Um, anybody else who's joining us for happy hour, hopefully you'll you'll tune back in um, and listen to episode three. Two of the biggest con- contributing factors that the indigenous community brought to the Midwest are two things that are very recognizable: corn which I think everybody, you know, kind of affiliates with the Midwest, and wild rice. And wild rice is incredibly important to the indigenous culture 
and the building blocks of indigenous food. Uh, so the, bo- both of our guests um, talk um, pretty extensively about that. Actually, the second guest, Maggie Rusu, who um, w- actually we spoke to um, in her job on um, one of the Native American reservations in, um, I believe, I want to say Minnesota, but she, I believe she's from South Dakota originally. It's all escaping me now. But she talks specifically about their wild rice treatment and production, which is really interesting as well. That's yeah, she was, what was she so was super knowledgeable. She was like, hey, every technical. I remember just like every technical detail. If there was anything that was like slightly off, she would always make sure that we got it like a hundred percent right. It was, it yeah. was really cool. She was really interesting. And she also talked about how like in the pandemic they've adapted because they, uh, you know, part of her role was trying to get food and food education um, and nutrition out to people in, um, you know, the indigenous community on the reservation. And now they've had to adapt that into meal kits, which is, you know, so it's, I mean, it's really interesting stuff and fantastic and important work. Capri, this is why I was so excited when you wanted to first pitch us this show, because I have to admit that when I heard that it was a show about Midwestern food, I did not fully appreciate all of the depth of what you'd be covering. And I would love to know a little more from you about how you sort of became immersed in this world of food. Um, We know that you love pie and you can talk about that, but how did (laughs) you learn about the other um, kind of food anthropology in your region? Um, I, I think two sort of general ways. I mean, I actually do have a degree in American studies from, from Stanford. And so an American studies degree is interdisciplinary and kind of um, exposes you to a lot of really interesting aspects, um, you know, whether it's history and anthropology, um, you know, and, and uh, public policy. And so it brings all these kind of aspects together. Um, but it, again, it, going back to my time uh, in the Senate, um, you know, I spent a lot of time, I was a member of the, the Senate Agriculture Committee. And, you know, because of that, I was really getting involved in, um, you know, this, the issues that were pertinent to Ohio. Um, so it's kind of the strange two worlds colliding where I always kind of fancied myself a, an amateur, you know, food historian and was really interested in the intersection of food and culture, uh, dating all the way back to my, you know, time in college to then seeing some of these aspects in practice, uh, whether, you know, it was uh, dealing with some of the the issues on the ground with agricultural production and food deserts in, in, in rural communities to, you know, growing up in a, in a multi-ethnic area where we have, you know, umpteen Italian festivals, Greek festivals, Slavic festivals, Hungarian festivals, you know, an Oktoberfest right next to, again, Amish country who had a huge impact on all of this because, Literally, you know, we make cars for we for General Motors, and like twenty five minutes away is the like fourth largest Amish settlement in the world, and their food and their you know the food ways of the Amish community um, very prevalent um, you know, to to you know the the community at large, and so that really kind of piqued my interest even more as a story that needed to be told. And Capri, I have to say, like, one of the most impressive things is, so for your book, and I'm sure you can speak to it a little bit more, you have contributors from both 
the Democratic and Republican leaders of our government, which I think in the current climate is quite an accomplishment to have brought them together in collaboration. What was it like, like gathering? Oh my gosh. Okay. Politicians so to give a little <laughs> bit of context to the listeners about this cookbook that just came out on the 4th of July, it's called United. We eat, as I think you mentioned earlier, uh, 50 great American recipes to bring us all together. And this, you know, again, like you mentioned pies, I love to bake and I would often bring pies into the Senate when, when we would actually have, legislative victories that were shared in a bipartisan manner to bring together the offices, you know, Democrat and Republican. And it kind of sparked this idea for me that food is something that brings us all together. It is a silent storyteller that, you know, can tell the the the, the story of our country one state at a time. And so I kind of sought out to find politicians that would be willing to share their food stories and represent their states. And we, and I originally thought, okay, you know, I'll write, you know, an introduction and then I'll get these 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans to do the 50 states. Did not turn out that way. We had, I did, I adapted 26. There's actually a little secret. There's actually 52 recipes in this book because we have, <laughs> because we have two from Maryland um, which is kind of a long story. One of them was actually supposed to be for the District of Columbia, but he decided to submit on behalf of Maryland without telling me. Um, and that is Michael Steele. We all love him anyway. He was the former Republican National Committee chair. Um, I'm a Democrat, but he submitted this 10-layer cake for Maryland, but he was born in the District of Columbia. So I asked him to do D.C. He ended up doing Maryland, and I already had a submission for Maryland. So I didn't want to go back to the drawing board. But it was very hard. It was like pooling teeth. A lot of people wanted to do it, and then nobody would submit their recipes. So just actually getting people, and I get this, as a former elected, people work on their own time. You know, you're, if you're 15 minutes late, you're on time. Um, so it took, a, like, a year to get this thing in working order um, because it just, you know, it, people are busy, and it takes them a long time to submit the recipes. But it's been fun. We have some great names and some great recipes in there. Will you give us a little sneak peek of who some of those other contributors are? Indeed. Um, so we got Mayor Pete Buttigieg, um, who submitted uh, Hoosier Pie on behalf of Indiana. Uh, Donna Brazil, former DNC chair, shared her family's famous gumbo. Um, Sean Spicer of Dancing with the Stars fame slash White House press secretary did did cheeseburgers for Virginia, which I thought was really random, but they're actually quite good. Um, feta and um, like this onion mix that he put in there. So I was like cheeseburgers for a cookbook, really, but it was actually pretty pretty interesting stuff. Um, uh, current Senator Amy Klobuchar, who you may know from running for president along with Mayor Pete on the Democratic side in 2020. And, and the list goes on. I mean, we ha- there are seven sitting members of, of Congress, three sitting governors, and then, and then the rest are former um, electeds slash you know, political leaders, like people that were head of the Republican or Democratic parties, that sort of thing. So they didn't hold an elected position. Um, word of note, we always have to be careful about, you know, how we, you know, with the sitting electeds, there's always rules around the, the current elected officials. But Amy Klobuchar actually tweeted about my book without any kind of uh, totally unsolicited. So I feel like I can use her name freely. That's, That's awesome. so fun. <laughs> and her recipe is especially decadent, too. 
Well, it's this. It's a hot dish. She's Minnesota. Minnesota <laughs> equals hot dish. Come on. I can tell you all about that. I feel like there. I have like the Minnesota hot dish is mentioned a number of times in episodes. Along with we have a whole chat about green bean casseroles. If you stick around, you can hear that at some point too in, in the series. Um, side note: Did anybody watch Spicy on Dancing with the Stars? Because I watched all of it. I was wrapped. I, I did not see. I miss. I, I miss that moment. Yeah, me I, too. But highly I, recommend if you. Uh, it's you just you can't look away, and uh, the costume design is something else. Well, see, this brings up a very good point, and this goes back to like the whole thing of food bringing people together, right? Dancing with the Stars, I think, can bring people together too, because <laughs> here's the thing: it's like you know, you may not like somebody's politics, but you may like their recipe. You may think their dancing is ridiculous, but at least you'll you'll actually tune in and watch because what happens here in both of these instances is that it, it humanizes people, and at a time where we're so divided as a nation. Food is such a disarming tool. You know, a lot of the recipes that are in the book were, um, you know, family recipes that people shared. And that's something that, you know, all of us can pretty much relate to, that there's a shoebox somewhere with somebody's grandma's recipes that are passed down. It's it's a, you know, rite of passage that we all share as Americans and as humans. And so, you know, somebody that you may see on TV or may just think, oh, they're a Republican or, oh, they're a Democrat, so I don't like them. All of a sudden, you have something different in common with them because maybe, you know, your grandma's from Louisiana and... She had a gumbo recipe similar to Donna Brazil, but you're a Republican and you never thought about that before. And now you have something in common. And it's, it may seem simple and it may seem cheesy, but sometimes you need simple and cheesy in the world. I love that so much. I feel like everyone should go out. Like if you have a, an aunt or uncle or parent or grandparent who like you might not see eye to eye with politically, like send them a copy of the book and you'll find some <laughs> common ground. <laughs> there you go. It's available on Amazon. It'll be available later in the year on with uh, a number of other national retailers as well as independent bookstores, which I find very, very important. And I've been like pushing my publisher, like, look, like, you know, because I'm new to this. I've never done a book ever of any sort. And so I'm like, we need to make sure that we get with the independent booksellers because I'm all about supporting small business, <laughs> whether it's small business from restaurants, small business from independent, you know, makers, you know, um, it's it's so important. So fingers crossed, all of that, it's, it's a process. But, and with the pandemic, things have gotten a little bit slowed down, but you know, it'll all come to fruition and hopefully you guys can find it in your local uh, independent bookshop too. Thank you. We are really appreciative for you also kind of pushing those indie bookstores. It's so important. Um, we, you brought up the pandemic. Uh, food culture is obviously hurting in so many ways right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're hearing things like 80% or more of restaurants might not be reopening. People are confronting food insecurity who had, you know, total job security at the beginning of right. this year even. And uh, everything is kind of turned upside down. Um, what is giving you hope right now? Oh, I mean, I, I would say that what what I've witnessed in the pandemic, um, you know, you see sort of the, the best of humanity. I mean, you've seen the worst of humanity as well. But I think by and large, we've seen the best of humanity. We've seen the ability for, 
um, uh, you know, Americans and, and humans across, you know, the world, frankly, uh, be able to adapt in a very short amount of time. You know, okay, we don't have masks. We're going to make masks. We don't, you know, we can't be inside for restaurants. We're going to do pop-ups on the, on the sidewalk. You know, we can't um, have congregate meal sites. We're going to do, you know, we're going to do um, meal kits. We can't have um, cooking uh, you know, demonstrations live. We're going to do cooking classes on Zoom. Uh, so we're seeing, and even, and even, you know, in, in our circumstance here at Heritage Radio Network, being able to um, sort of turn on a dime uh, and revamp how things are being recorded. And so I think that that level of ingenuity, as well as I think a pervasive desire for people to to help other people and I do I do see this again I know a lot of times we hear more about the negative on you know in media on TV or in social media but you know by and large in individual communities you see people that are stepping up finding creative ways to help one another um, in very difficult and trying times and, and that certainly is hopeful and I'm trying to do my little part as well by um, committing a portion of the proceeds of United We Eat to uh, Feeding America as well, because food insecurity has always been a big issue for me. And now more than ever, although I made that decision well before the pandemic, um, you know, I think now more than ever, it's important. Here, That's here. so wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Least I can do. Well, Capri, thank you so much for joining us on HR and Happy Hour. And even more so, a thousandfold thank you for joining the HRN family. We are so honored to have you. You can find Eat Your Heartland Out anywhere you listen to podcasts and, of course, at heritageradionetwork.org. And Capri, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find, first you can find my book um, at Eat Your Heartland, or excuse me, Eat Your Heartland, well, Eat Your Heartland, at unitedweeat.com, so unitedweeat.com and Amazon. You can also find my food Instagram at the humble pie baker. Uh, so you can, you can put that in. It's all uh, the underscore humble underscore pie underscore baker. So the humble pie baker is where you find me on Instagram. I got all kinds of, I need to do better with my social media handles, by the way. You can tell I don't do, I don't like social media, uh, but I do it anyway. And then my Twitter. You're is, not alone. <laughs> my, my Twitter is equally as ridiculous. It is the honorable CSC. And that, that's a carryover from my government days um, because I am technically the honorable is my title and CSC are my initials. So the honorable CSC on Twitter and the humble pie baker on Instagram. And I am beyond honored to be part of the HRN family. So it, it really is an incredible opportunity. And um, it's a wonderful feeling to, to be a storyteller and bring the flavors of my part of the country to the rest of the HRN listening audience. The Honorable Capri Cafaro, thank you so much. <laughs> Stay tuned for the first episode of Eat Your Heartland Out after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. 
To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out, a brand new series about the food and culture of the American Midwest. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro, and I want to take just a minute to introduce myself as I will be your tour guide through this audio exploration of the heartland. I am a Midwestern native from the state of Ohio, once known, as you may know, as the heart of it all. That was our slogan back in the day. My corner of the Midwest is not rural, but rather industrial. It's an area filled with Italian restaurants, Slavic festivals, and annual Oktoberfests, symbols that represent the immigrants who settled there at the turn of the 20th century. I decided to create this show to share the untold story of my region. Yes, the Midwest is a geographic designation made up of 12 states from the plains in the West to Ohio in the East, but it is so much more than places on a map. Some call the Midwest flyover country, a term often used to describe the area between New York and Los Angeles, and frankly a term many of us Midwesterners see as insulting as it insinuates the Midwest is without a character of its own. Some refer to the Midwest as the breadbasket of America, describing agricultural states that are well known for producing food for the nation and the world. In this series, we will explore the cultures that make up the fabric of the American Midwest, immigration and migration patterns that shape the region's identity, agricultural practices and resources that have influenced the development of Midwestern food. How have these factors influenced the often overlooked rich culinary diversity of America's heartland? Well, we're about to find out. Join me as we take a journey together into the tastes of the American Midwest here on Eat Your Heartland Out on Heritage Radio Network. In part one of our introduction, we will be setting the stage, introducing the people, places, and products of the American Midwest. How does this unique tapestry inform the region's foodways? That is exactly what we will start to discuss today in our lineup of informative and knowledgeable guests. Joining us first is Mark Anthony Arsenio from the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University. He has an expertise in the anthropology of food. It's great to be here. Well, as someone who has an expertise in this area, the anthropology of food, I thought that you would be a great person to kick off our series uh, to provide us with a backdrop and context about how we want to think about the intersection of communities and food. Um, what, what's a good framework that you would use as an anthropologist when thinking about how food and communities intersect? So for me, uh, food is biology, it's symbol, and it's culture, right? And so we have these three different aspects to food, and it's the way that we study how humans relate to food, what it means to them, how are all these things inter- interconnected with one another. Um, so the first of these is biology. It's we all need to eat. And our nutrition needs to typically be considered. Um, We need it to survive. And there are different ways that um, health officials interpret this and how that's played out in practice um, at the community level. Um, And at the same time, it's also a cultural thing. It's something that's shared and passed down. 
Um, we're, going, we're talking about generations to generations. When we look at transitions to agriculture, to industrialization, to the mechanization of food, we're looking at the way that the different ways that food ends up changing and how it permeates our cultures and subcultures. Um, and in this process, um, food becomes a sort of symbol. And so for the individual or for the group, food means something. Um, and it's looking at how all of these different pieces, um, food that we're buying from the supermarket, for nutritional reasons, or perhaps for cultural reasons, or because it's something it means, it's something that means something to me. Um, these are different ways that we can look at it uh, on a more holistic kind. Very, of very interesting. And and as you're mentioning these these factors uh, in this framework, biology, culture, symbolism, um, it, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how this could be applied to looking at. Uh, the interpretation of Midwestern foodways. How do these three factors come together um, to help um, explain or interpret Midwestern foodways with different immigrant communities coming uh, into the area, different agricultural resources and terrain throughout a very diverse geographic region, uh, and um, ultimately how that all comes together to, to make Midwestern foodways? Yeah, it's a, it's a large question for a very large reason, region, like you're saying, that is, is so diverse and full of um, different ecologies and perspectives. Um, so I think one of the sources that I'd like to start with, um, if I can, is the American Midwest, an interpretive encyclopedia. Um, and it was edited. It's a in, great it's a great text and one that I would suggest anybody pick up if you want to learn about the Midwest, for sure. Yeah, it was um, it was edited in 2006 by um, Dr. Richard Sisson and the late doctors Christian Zacher and Andrew Kaden, all from OSU, uh, from Ohio State. And the way that they're considering even migratory, when we consider um, even recent migratory waves, um, it may be a little outdated since it was 2006, but um, I think this is a good place to start. And the way that they talk about food and foodways for the Midwest especially is looking at the very specific physical environment, right, this diversity of space, um, as well as the complicated immigrant history that we've got in this area. And so we take a look at these two things holistically um, in this anthropological approach to food. Um, and so when we look at the different environment and where we are, where we're situated, we'll have different wild fruits, different berries and things that are grown in very specific locations. Um, we also have the influence of corn and agriculture. Um, and because of that, it's not much of a surprise that we now see you know, corn dogs in Illinois, corn flakes coming from Kellogg, Michigan, um, there's even a thing called corn cob jelly in Indiana, um, and you Yum. have these different, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I haven't been fortunate to to taste that yet, um, but you have these different um, foods that are very endemic and very local, situated in place, and you have these traditions that start to be um, centered around those things. And in addition to the the land based products, we also have um, the influence of the Great Lakes and how water is obviously home to seafood and fish, um, and the importance of the to the population and populations that are coming in and trying to reap these natural resources. Um, and another place to also take a look at is um, the importance of pork and um, the animal, other animals being fed on corn feed and what all of these different things, um, how they come to define the region from these very, what seem like very disparate kind of ingredients, um, but things that again are very local and um, situated in place. Um, also point out that as we're talking about immigration into this area, um, we can't ignore the entanglements with um, indigenous identities and perspectives. Absolutely. And the, um, and the ways in which, um, you know, we have this story that I'm, I'm 
I would hope that most of the listeners know of indigenous communities being pushed out, um, being pushed out of their original uh, homelands. Um, but at the same time, there's that initial contact before all of that, where community leaders are showing immigrants, um, you know, how to cultivate corn, um, how to tap maple syrup, how to grow rice, um, how to hunt for morels, and so you have all these different ways um, in which cultural sharing is happening um, in place. And then, you know, we speed up a little bit and over time we have Europeans coming in, namely from Italy and um, from Europe throughout the first hundred years. Um, and then more recently, um, in the last next century, we see people coming from different areas of the world. And so all of these perspectives are being drawn in, um, not necessarily, I mean, complicating um, Midwestern cuisine and, and heritage, but also incorporating that into um, the lives where people are also coming from. That's a that's a great introduction, Mark Anthony, to provide our listeners uh, with a jumping off point as we go on this journey further into uh, Midwestern culture, Midwestern cuisine, uh, Midwestern identity, um, and a great lead into our next guest as well. So, um, Mark Anthony, thank you so very much for joining us again, Mark Anthony Arsenio from the Department of Anthropology at Ohio State University. Thanks again for for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So our next guest is Cynthia Clampett, a food historian with two books that focus on the Midwest. Midwest Maze, How Corn Shaped the U.S. Heartland and Pigs, Pork, and Heartland Hogs, From Wild Boar to Bacon Fest. She is also working on a new book from the University of Illinois Press, tentatively titled Visiting Midwest History, which will cover all aspects of Midwestern history, including culture and food, from Native Americans up into the beginning of the 20th century. Cynthia, it's so great to have you. Thank you, Capri. It's great to be here. Well, we have so much to talk about. I know how passionate you are and knowledgeable you are about the subject, which is why I wanted to uh, talk to you in uh, our inaugural episode. Um, and so I hope that you can share with our listeners a little bit about the context of the Midwest. What kind of cultural groups are present in the Midwestern part of the United States, and how did they get there? Um, well, that is a huge, huge story. Yes, it yes. is. <laughs> it was a lot of people came. In fact, the Midwest was settled faster than any other region in the history of the world, and they came from everywhere. But the first waves, right, right after the American Revolution, the first waves would have been from the eastern formerly colonies. And you can kind of see that as you go through, um, get fish boil up in Wisconsin because they came across from New England mm -hmm. and you get biscuits and gravy in Southern Illinois because they came across from Virginia. So um, it's it's one of those things where that was the first things. But as soon as there was a, the, the national road uh, followed by, because most of them originally came by river um, or, right. or the Great Lakes. Right. But once the national road was open, and then, of course, in the mid-1800s, once trains were available, people started mm -hmm. just flooding. I mean, you have the covered wagons to a certain extent on the road, but you have the, once the trains are over, people flooded over in the, literally in the millions, um, and from both directions. Uh, it, you know, we've all heard the stories of how badly the Chinese were treated in California, so they all came to the Midwest because they were mm -hmm. very welcome here. So that's why Chicago has the oldest or the second oldest Chinatown in the country after San Francisco. And St. Okay. Louis mm -hmm. has the third oldest. So it's like we have this that, that influence as well. But then you have coming from Europe, um, 
Well, and even from the Middle East. I mean, we have everybody coming over. You've got Lebanese and you've got Dutch and you've got Scandinavians coming over. And, of course, the Swiss, which is why Wisconsin is so cheese-oriented. Um, fact. I And I've been to some of those places, like New Galeris, yes. uh, Wisconsin, which is a little Switzerland. Absolutely, incredible. absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why the very first all-American cheese, brick cheese, was invented in Wisconsin in the 1800s, because that's where the Swiss settled. Scandinavians tended to go north to where it was more like Scandinavia. So you have huge numbers of um, Finnish and Norwegian and Dutch settlements, although all these groups settled sort of everywhere because you've got uh, Bishop Hill here in Illinois and uh, Andersonville, and so you've got Scandinavians even here in, in you know in Chicago, sort of northern Illinois. But they tended to go north. Um, then you had you know you had the um, Germans came in huge numbers. Cornish for the mines. That's one of the reasons why you have. Pasties mm-hmm. up in in you know Minnesota all the way over to Michigan. Um, you have Belgians. Interestingly enough, Belgians were great hoteliers, and one of the hotels that was founded by a Belgian in Chicago um, was the Dijon Hotel. So if you've ever had shrimp Dijon, that's where that came from. Oh, um, Czechs and Slovaks. They brought European mushrooms and roast pork and dumplings and sour cream. And then you have the Polish, um, Eastern European Jews, once things heated up, Hungarians, Slovenians, Croatians, um, just huge numbers, Lebanese, Christians, Greeks. I mean, it just they came in just waves and waves and waves. And basically the entire region was settled and had become, you know, settled within, you know, like 50, 60 years. So it just... Uh, well, and just in these just in these few minutes, Cynthia, I think you've, you've shown... Um, a, a pretty vibrant uh, ethnic tapestry yes. of uh, what the Midwest is. A lot of folks don't necessarily think about that level of diversity yeah. uh, throughout the the Midwest, um, and and so to just in a few minutes travel around the world in that part of the country is just incredible. And I, I don't know if I. Didn't think I heard you mention my people, the Italians. Oh, but well, I, I if know I that, didn't, it was uh, just because there's so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're every we are everywhere, as is our food. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to circle back for a minute um, on uh, something you mentioned. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, for example, the Swiss and their cheese influence, and uh, I think some of the Eastern Europeans and some of the things they brought, like mushrooms. Um, Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about um, how these cultures brought different types of foods and introduced them into the Midwest um, and then subsequently maybe had to adapt them to the agricultural landscape that exists in the middle of the United States. Well, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of of, um, both aspects. I mean, it's one of the reasons why um, you've got, you know, a lot of the states have wild rice as the local grain, corn. Um, those were both very popular w- amongst people once they got settled here. I mean, people had never had, well, technically maize. Corn simply means the dominant cereal grain of a region. And corn is the corn, maize is the corn of the Midwest. And so a lot of people had to get used to that, had to learn how to grow it, had to learn how to deal with it. Um, even if you just fed it to your animals, 
uh, it was still absolutely necessary. So it's one of the reasons why they a lot of the Midwest is known as the Corn Belt is because corn was so important. Um, buffalo became huge. So a lot of, and the fish, I mean, if your fish boil in New England was going well, it was going well with, with you know, Lake Superior whitefish, not with anything from the ocean. So, um, right. so they brought a lot of their traditions, but they also then adopted a lot of the foods, but they also brought a lot with them. And they, you know, for instance, one of the things I think is fascinating is the degree to which rye bread is regional. When I was out on the West uh-huh. Coast, the, the bread lab folks were saying, oh, we don't have rye bread out here. Um, it's just really hard to come by. You know, you have to order away for rye flour. And, in, you know, in Chicago, we have whole aisles of grocery stores that are just rye bread because right. of the, you know, because you've got so many Eastern European countries. Um some mm-hmm. some regions are sort of specifically like if you're in Holland, Michigan, you'll probably be eating Dutch food, but you get up into Minnesota, into the Iron Range area, and more more than two dozen different countries settled in the Iron Range in the mines up there. So it's uh, and the other thing that they kind of adapt, I'd say, adapted to happily is the stunning abundance. A lot of people moved here because of war and persecution and things like that. But a lot of people also came because they just didn't have any food back home. Um, in Ireland, right. the Irish potato famine. I mean, people might think, oh well, so get, eat something besides potatoes. Well, for the Irish, there was nothing else. The average diet was like five pounds of potatoes a day. Maybe if you were lucky, a glass of milk. So when there was no potatoes, that meant no food at all. You get to the Midwest, and you've just got staggering amounts of, of food. And so all of a sudden, people are eating, you know, three pounds of meat a day uh, because it's available. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's they brought all of their ideas. One of the things that helped, though, is, of course, is, is the pork culture of the whole world. All of basically Europe and Asia has a pork culture. So the fact that there were so many pigs in the Midwest from early on, (laughs) all introduced, of course, but there were so many of them because they multiply so fast. Everybody brought their pig ideas. So so like the, the Germans and the Irish got along really well because both of them knew what to do with pork and cabbage and potatoes. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's one of those things where it, it adapted agriculturally, but it also adapted to having neighbors that had similar ideas. And so things started to sort of blend. I mean, there are obvious things that it's like, okay, if you're eating a pasty in Michigan, that's Cornish. That's not so so blended as the other things. Or very different from Nebraska, right? Yes, exactly. Where you've got the runza, um, and if you're in Indiana or Iowa, you're going to be eating a a pork tenderloin sandwich, which is basically just a, a great big German schnitzel. Um, so everybody everybody brought something with them, and they all brought great stuff. And it's one of the reasons we're so blended. Of course, we've got you know bagels, and we've got sour cream, and we've got stews, and we've got you know. So it's just. And then, of course, roasts. I mean, it's like you get things on on blades, whether it's shashlik or shish kebab or ambrochette. And then, you know, and then, like I said, the Lebanese were coming over um, in the early 1800s, too. So so we got a lot of, of, of things, you know from sort of that Middle Eastern flavoring, too. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody had brought well, you, what they had, and the Greeks ended up owning most of the restaurants. And, and that's another and thing. I, it's like Cincinnati chili. I mean, that's basically just Greek spaghetti sauce. But they yeah. called it chili because it's America. So it's uh, it's one of those things well, where... I, I, as, as an Ohioan, I definitely have my own feelings about Cincinnati chili, but it is an iconic Midwestern dish, and... 
Um, we are going to be covering so many of these uh, these ethnic groups, these cultures, and their their food ways and their food histories throughout this entire season Absolutely. Uh, and, and in this series, which I'm so excited to delve deeper into all of these. Uh, you mentioned the Greeks. We're going to have uh, someone on the show later in the season talking about how uh, Greeks came over and became confectioners and were leading candy makers um, when they came to the Midwest. Certainly. And so this is, it's really uh, interesting. You've given us um, a really great snapshot of well, why the Midwest is so diverse um, and why the Midwest, you know, what you've described uh, to me and to our listeners is um, not just a Midwestern story, but the American story. It is. A, you know, a, a place where people came to settle for opportunity, for abundance, for uh, salvation, mm-hmm. where they were welcomed and where they were able to both preserve their own cultural identities while sharing and integrating with their neighbors. Absolutely. So, um, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to, um, to present here. And so this is really uh, incredible. I'm well, thank very you. thankful to have you come on the show, Cynthia, and, and hopefully you'll be able to come back sometime later in the season. Oh, absolutely. I would love to. Well, our final guest today on uh, the show is Lucy Long, the director of the Center of Food and Culture at Bowling Green State University in my home state of Ohio. She holds a PhD in folklore from the University of Pennsylvania and has done extensive research and writing in the area of Midwestern foodways and is apparently a total rock star because anybody that I've talked to said, you need to talk to Lucy Long. So we are very excited to have you today, Lucy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I enjoy being called a rock star. So. Well, I think it's well-deserved, Lucy. Uh, so we're, I want to talk to you today a little bit about um, you know, your work as a folklorist and, and an expert in this area, um, because I've often thought that Midwestern food is more of a state of mind than maybe one type of cuisine. Um, would you say that's the case? How would you describe Midwestern food? Is is it a state of mind? Well, I think I think it's possible to say that in some ways. Um, and the the reason I'm hesitating is is that one of the characteristics of Midwestern food is people don't usually think about it. So so when you say it's a state of mind, part of that is that they're not really conscious of, of having a Midwestern tradition. Interesting. And, and why, why is that? Well, if you look historically at the Midwest, it's a combination of the natural resources and every region is a combination of the natural environment and then what humans have done with that environment over time. And if you look at the Midwest, the people who were settling here that were European, you know, settling as Americans, um, were coming in as pioneers. Mm-hmm. And in general, you know, they 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 were not they were not focusing on on their heritage or on artistic practices. They were focused on survival. Mm. So, so food tended to be very practical, very functional. Um, 
people didn't want to be experimenting too much. Um, right. They didn't have resources enough resources to be experimental. Um, you know, so so part of what that resulted in is a very conservative, um, almost anti-adventurous <laughs> approach to food. A lot of people would consider the food, therefore, very bland. Um, it is based on on basic, um, well, not not basic American, but the the British foundation of American culture, which mm-hmm. did be very bland, also. So that the only the only spice that would be used is generally salt. Right. Um, butter can be a flavoring, maybe a little bit of pepper. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, so that tends to be considered very bland, very unadventurous. Um, at the same time, the the food can be seen as very democratic. It's, How so? the The food is not; it tends to not be gourmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not based on expensive or difficult to find ingredients. It's the kind of food that um, it it tends to be accessible to everyone. Um, so if you have meat and potatoes, you can add sauces to that. You can add spices. So it tends to be very basic ingredients, and that that does ingredients that are accessible to everyone. Frequently, ingredients you know that are being produced, mass produced, and are part of um, the industrial food system. So, so that means that they're national foods. Also, right. Well, how does this jive? I mean, what you're describing is very much what I think people often associate with Midwestern foods: simple, bland, basic. Um, but you know, we also know, and we we heard from a previous guest about the um, the variety of different cultures and different immigrants, uh, immigrant groups that settled across the Midwest. Um, from all over the world, and they brought their own food traditions and flavors with them. So how does this basic, you know, more bland foundation of the Midwestern foodways jive with this more maybe lively, robust, diverse uh, palate that comes in from, uh, you know, all these different corners of, of the globe? Right. The, the Midwest is extremely diverse, um, Many, many different ethnic groups have settled throughout the Midwest. Um, there's a huge difference between urban and rural in, in the Midwest. So one of the things we're looking at, every region, you can see patterns for, for cultural traditions. That doesn't mean that every single person there is participating in those patterns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so part of the indication that there is a Midwestern foodways ethos and aesthetic, I like to call it. Um, If you talk to someone who comes from another country and starts a restaurant um, someplace in the Midwest, particularly in the rural Midwest, they tend to comment, well, Midwesterners don't like this much spice. So we offer a, a version of this that is not as spicy. You know, or 
we know that Midwesterners are not that adventurous or they're not as familiar. So that, that doesn't mean that there is not an incredible amount of diversity, um, you know, and some wonderful, wonderful food. I've had the, the best Mexican food I've ever had was in Madison, Wisconsin. Wow. Um, I mean, even, even from within Mexico. Um, so Columbus, Ohio has wonderful Somalian restaurants. So, and you know, they're, they're just these incredible finds. Where, where I live in Northwest Ohio, um, from here up through the Detroit area is a, um, a huge settlement area for people from the Middle East. And this has been going on for a hundred years and for over a hundred years and the most wonderful and incredible varieties of Middle Eastern cuisines are available here. So, so to say that the Midwest does, does have a pattern of bland and basic foods, that, that doesn't mean that there's not that diversity. So, and most of, the, most of the people involved in the diversity are also very aware of the patterns. Interesting. I, you know, I, I think it's so important, and we're going to be exploring this throughout this, uh, throughout this season on this series about the different uh, immigrant groups and how they individually um, have influenced Midwestern foodways in their own unique way. But um, I want to kind of loop back to where you started the conversation about the basic ingredients um, that you know make up the um, the concept of some of the Midwestern foods. And I know you wrote uh, a piece on the green bean casserole. This is an American icon, very often a Midwestern icon on on the the dinner tables um, uh, across the region. And and so maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about that essay and um, think about it in the lens again, I at least um, see you know the, the casserole, the hot dish as this um, this state of mind that is synonymous with with Midwestern hospitality and warmth. Um, so I, I want you to share share your views and and your writings on that particular uh, that particular dish, the green bean casserole. Well, green bean casserole was something that came to my attention partly because I did not grow up in the Midwest. <laughs> so uh-huh. I am from the South um, and then actually actually grew up in Far East and Southeast Asia. Um, so I have Southern, Southern cooking is my tradition. So when I moved to, to Ohio, um, this was 33 years ago now, um, when I moved here, I, I was teaching, prim- well, primarily folklore classes and American studies classes, and I'd ask the students for their Thanksgiving dinner menus because I was noticing that there were differences between regions. This was before food was kind of a hot topic to study. So I asked them what their menus were, and they they would say, well, it's just, just all the usual stuff, turkey, potatoes, um, green bean casserole. 
I was like, what? <laughs> Green bean casseroles, that's not one of the standards. And they would all be very surprised. Oh, yeah, we always have it. We have it for family dinners. We have them for, have it for potluck. Um, so, And then when I would talk to people at conferences or just friends and family who did not live in the Midwest, and I would mention that this was the Thanksgiving dinner, their responses were sometimes shock amazement, disgust, disbelief. <laughs> and, and I started hearing comments like, well, what would you expect from Midwesterners? Uh, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and I've, my, my three children were born in the Midwest. So I felt like I, I had to protect, I had to defend them. And um, one of the tenets of folklore, also a folklore scholarship, is that there is a logic to every cultural tradition so that people are doing things, even if they don't realize it, they're doing things that make sense to their history, their value system, their circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, so when you look at something like, like green bean casserole, um, initially people would say, well, Midwesterners have no taste. And, you know, that might be true of some of them, but that's true of people everywhere. <laughs> so, but as a folklorist, I was interested in finding out, well, what is the logic behind this tradition? Why would people embrace this, this food that the recipe was invented in a commercial in Campbell's that, right. Campbell's in New Jersey? 1955. <laughs> and it's and it still lives on, on on the back of packages of, you know, industrial food that you can buy at the grocery store. For those that may not be familiar with green bean casserole, before you get into uh, <laughs> sort of the, the, the folklore uh, aspect of it, um, describe it so, so the listeners can visualize what a green bean casserole looks like. Okay. The basic recipe for green bean casserole is green beans. These can be canned green beans, frozen. Um, they can be fresh, but that, that's not that common. Um, a can of Campbell's mushroom soup. Okay, so the soup is mixed in with the, with the beans. Um, and there are these little fried onions, usually either the Durkee company or French, French's company, um, you know, that people describe them as, as similar to potato chips, but a little bit more like styrofoam than, <laughs> than, than potato chips. So, so you mix all that together. There's, you put in a little bit of milk, a little bit of salt. Um, actually, one of the interesting things about the original recipe there was a tablespoonful of soy sauce, and that's right. So, and now this was in the 1950s. Now, soy soy sauce we we tend to think of it now. It's always Asian, um, you know. But but using a sauce from soybeans was actually something that was promoted by Benjamin Franklin. Um, but what what I think is very interesting about that is one of the large factories for processing green beans and tomatoes and all the ingredients for Campbell's soup 
is in Napoleon, Ohio. And they actually, the, the factory has a giant replica of a tomato soup can, a Campbell soup can. <laughs> and so, so very close to that, however, um, there, there was another factory. And this was a factory for the La Choy Company, which was the first commercial company to, to create Chinese, sort of Chinese-American food. They were producing soy sauce. So, and right. that actually started in Detroit. Um, so I haven't, I've, I have talked to people from Campbell Soup, and they haven't been able to tell me if there's a connection there. <laughs> but it's possible because these factories were only about, about 10 or 15 minutes apart from each other. Okay, so um, so so this this casserole, it's all mixed together. The the fried onions are sprinkled on top and mixed in and it's baked and that, that's all there is to it. Um, so partly the simplicity shocked me as a southerner to make something for a holiday. It has to be complicated, you have to have lots of special ingredients. You know, but but it also surprised me that it was it was using all these mass-produced products. It was embracing the industrialized food system. Now, the Midwest is obviously a place where the industrialized food system is extremely large. Agriculture here is, is very tied in to the food industry. However, so many families and farmers that I talked to said that they all had their own gardens. They would raise a lot of their own food. You know, so so I was, I was trying to trying to figure out how does this raising their own food? They kind of a pioneer mentality of self sufficiency. You know, so they wanted they can their own food. They raise you know, raise chickens and cows, and also that they didn't have to depend on on the industrial food system, but economically they were tied into it because, because their, their um, occupation as farmers tended to right. be tied into to the food industry. Okay, so there were these contradictions that I, I was trying to understand. Um, so what I started seeing was people embraced green bean casserole. Um, initially, it was seen as this was very modern. You know, this was a sign of being a good, modern, progressive American in the 1950s and 60s because, because you were taking something that was new and that was using all this new technology. Okay, you know, now we look at it as, oh, yeah, this is kind of backwards. But when it was first introduced, this was very exciting for people. <laughs> okay, so... So that's part of how it started getting established in the area. And, and then other aspects of the culture kicked in. Um, the, the idea that this was something that people liked and it was very easy and quick and inexpensive to make, it, th this meant that people could always depend on this being eaten and consumed. They didn't waste money. It was very, very pragmatic, um, but 
Also, there's the concept of social capital. People knew that other people liked this, that everyone knew what this was. Okay, so if they took it to a potluck, there wasn't, there weren't any surprises. There weren't any unpleasant surprises for people. And so by bringing this to a potluck, people were saying, here, this is something I know you will like. <laughs> right. And this is all about being together in unity. Okay, now, as, as someone who, who lived on the East Coast before moving out here, I always found potlucks to be where exciting new dishes were being offered. So it was a very different, different kind of, of ethos and aesthetic. And I didn't realize that until one of my friends after a potluck said, Lucy, why do you always have to bring all this weird stuff? It's like stuff. <laughs> and you know, so, so she thought I was showing off. Or she said, well, it kind of makes the rest of us look bad because we just have this plain stuff. Uh, oh, <laughs> I, I had no idea. You know, so, so I started realizing that idea of presenting food that you know everyone likes, everyone is familiar with, it doesn't have any surprises. That's a very important strategy for creating a sense of community, for creating connections that people feel with each other um, and with the past. So the other thing I started realizing with green bean casserole, when I would ask people how they made it, people would always laugh. Well, you know, it says you have to do it like this on the on the on the box or the, the can, <laughs> right? So, and and a lot of supermarkets out here actually do have displays for green bean casserole right around Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd ask them, and a lot of people would say, well, I stick. I stick to the authentic recipe. And other people say, well, you know, I like to put, put some raw onions in with it. Or I like to add mushrooms or canned chicken. So I started finding people were creating variations with it that could then express their own personality or their own circumstances. Um, you know, so here was, here was a mass produced industrial product, you know, that people felt this brings everyone together. This is just regular old American food. However, they could express their individuality through this. Mm. So, and I think that's, that's a real key. I started finding even, even if people insisted that they used the traditional, and everyone thinks it's traditional. <laughs> so, so even if they use the authentic traditional recipe, they they would do things like, um, like have a special dish that they always served it in, or right. they would they would make a special design with the onions on top. <laughs> so, so, so make making something that is so basic and what some may see as everyday becomes celebrated when it's provided in a context that is appropriated um, by, you know, individual circumstances, whether it's that um, the holiday or, um, you know, the potluck dinner, uh, how it's presented, all of these things 
um, play into um, telling telling that story and telling that Midwestern story, it sounds to me, um, you know, one where we focus so heavily on community, um, on inclusion, but but then, as you indicated, um, also um, celebrating and finding ways for individuality. Yes, yes. That, I think, is, is extremely important, especially for Americans, because Americans all want to feel like they are individuals. <laughs> so at the same time, we need to feel, as humans, that we are a part of something larger. We are a part of the community, of the collective. So the idea that everybody is sitting down and, and eating the same foods, you know, and with green bean casserole, it can literally be everyone's using the same, the same products, the same Campbell soup. <laughs> you know, so you're doing that, the celebrating community, yet you can also express your individuality. Um, so in, in many ways, this is very, very democratic. Um, and it also is kind of an expressing one of the ideals of the nation, that we can all be individuals, but also belong to the nation, to the collective. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great place uh, to leave our conversation, because that's really why I think we're all so fascinated by food. We all need to eat. We all love to eat. But it has this uh, tremendous significance to, to each and every one of, one of us and tells um, that story of our nation and, in this case, of our region. So uh, Lucy Long, Bowling Green State University, thank you so very much for sharing your insights. You are really a rock star. Thank you. Thank you. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family 